The Guardian. Over in Tokyo, athletics competitions are taking place at the end of the week and running for a series of eight days at the Olympics. As with any development in sport technology, there are always arguments that these innovations provide unfair advantages. The decision to ban or not to ban any so-called technology doping is up to the sport's own governing body, and the president of World Athletics, Sebastian Coe, has dismissed concerns about the latest shoe controversy. The Guardian's chief sports reporter, Sean Ingle, argues the great shoe war has now switched lanes from the road to the track with what some people are calling super spikes. The latest development has seen two to four seconds being shaved off elite times indoors. As records are being smashed, we wanted to look at how the advantages in running shoe technology is progressing and to try and understand if it's fair. From The Guardian, I'm Shivani Dave, and this is Science Weekly. Jeff Burns is a biomechanics and physiology researcher at the University of Michigan who understands these developments as an academic, but he's also a runner himself, with the 100km ultramarathon being his race of choice. Before we get into the specifics of the so-called super shoes, Uh, Can you tell us a bit about the biomechanics of running itself? What are some of the things that a good shoe will do for a runner? Yeah, so shoes do a couple things for us. Uh, The first thing is that they protect our feet from the ground. Um, The ground is a pretty hostile environment for for us soft humans nowadays that we've kind of adapted to comforts of everyday life. So they protect the bottom of our feet. Second thing that they do, um, and this is probably maybe the most pronounced and that they've always done for, you know, since the advent of modern running shoes is that they provide some degree of cushioning for our body. So that is, they dissipate some of the energy that when we land on the ground, they soften, soften the landing for each foot strike. And that's something that when we're barefoot, our muscles and our bodies and our ligaments and our tendons have to do themselves. But as soon as we add shoes, that that offloads some of that cushioning work from the body. So broadly speaking, it protects your foot, um, provides some traction, but then it also cushions the body as you land and then also changes kind of subtly how your foot interacts with the ground. Is the aim of the game basically to reduce the energy loss? That's, that's it exactly. Um, so when you land on the ground... Yeah, you have um, shoes for a long time, like I said, dissipate some of that energy. And that's actually, to, a de- to some degree, is, is good because that is the act of you know, cushioning that. But if we can recycle some of that energy, um, the more and more of that ex- you know, energy that is compressed when you land on the ground, the more and more that we can get back of that, that's where an advantage comes in. You see this, I mean, you actually see this in Formula One racing in, in the brakes, the kinetic energy recovery systems in a... Formula One car traps some of the inertia from braking and gets it going to allow you to, you know, use that then to speed up. Similar thing in running. If we can trap more of that energy that, you know, when you compress and cushion, it can give back and bounce back, you know, so a more perfect spring in your step. The Guardian Sean Ingle has written about some of the advantages that shoes offer, like the Nike Vaporflight. What aspects of the shoe actually lead to these improvements? Yeah, so the the Vaporfly was definitely a, um, (laughs) could say it's been said a million times, but a game changer, (laughs) Um, or rather a race changer. (laughs) It differed from our traditional running shoes in 
um, I would say maybe three distinct ways is it had this new foam in it that, and this is really kind of the X factor is it had this foam that was very, very squishy. It was very compliant. And, and what made this foam so magical was that it, it actually has three properties that make it really magical. Um, it's very compliant, which means it squishes down a lot more than normal shoes. But it's also very resilient, which means it squishes back. So it recovers more of that energy like we were just talking about. So it, more compliant, squishes down more. More resilient, squishes back more <laughs> after you unload. And then um, on top of that, it's much less dense. So it's much lighter. So you can put more of it underneath your foot. So those three things in the past, running shoe manufacturers, um, foams have always played around with those different attributes at the cost of the other. So they could make a shoe that was squishier, um, but it might not bounce back as much. So it might not give you back as much energy, or they could make it bounce back and give you, you know, more energy, but it might be less squishy or it might be more dense and be more heavy and, you know, to carry on your foot. So this was a shoe that this foam, um, it's called PBAX, polyether block amide. Uh, it's just a, a new generation of foams and, and it really, it really wins on all three of those metrics. So it's kind of like having your cake and eating it too on your feet. Old running shoes used to recycle about 60% of the energy. These are upwards of, you know, 85%. And so, you know, if a perfect spring is 100%, so you're really moving the dial there. But in order to realize the benefits or, or maybe to augment the benefits of it, so they put this plate through it to really essentially harness all of those benefits of the foam, best harness it and facilitate maybe a more efficient foot strike with the ground. And researchers are still trying to figure out the exact mechanisms of, you know, how that plate might work. Um, but broadly speaking, it really facilitates the benefits of the foam and that quicker interaction with the ground. And then on top of that, um, you know, all of those aspects of it allow you to put more of that underneath the foot. Um, and so you see thicker and thicker shoes. So you kind of realize this, this um, more perfect surface underneath you know, each foot strike. So kind of these very thick shoes with better foam and this, you know, this rigid architecture running through it, all of those, you know, three ingredients have, have really made a cake <laughs> that we can now you know, have it and eat it too. And I guess that leads us quite nicely onto super spikes, which also use peabacks or something similar. Yeah. And they're, they're sort of designed in a very similar way as the running shoes, aren't they? Yeah, so they their features very much, you know, say either echo or mirror those features on the shoes. And the, you know, the shoes are, I would say, a little bit more extreme because, you know, both from, I would say, the requirements of, of the task, it might be harder to, for some people to run fast in a very clunky shoe. But now we also have restrictions that prevent shoes from being that thick on the track. But, but yes, they are, <laughs> they are cakes with the same ingredients. <laughs> um, they have they have this more of this foam than a traditional spike, and then they usually have a rigid plate going through it. And the the different materials vary from brand to brand, um, but broadly speaking, the foams if it's not PBAX, it's something similar, um, uh, like a we would say like a TPU that they've you know, blown with nitrogen um, in the process to essentially arrive at the same qualities of the foam, where it's this softer, lighter more resilient foam. Um, and that's really kind of the magic. 
and then the way that they curve a plate through there changes. Um, so yeah, so brands are, you know, essentially taking that playbook and putting it in the spikes and we're seeing it and we've seen essentially the same thing happen on the track that we saw happen a few years ago on the roads. It's probably important to say here, as you just mentioned, it's not just Nike who are pushing ahead with this kind of technology. There's others in the mix, New Balance being one of them. Is there much of a muchness in between the different shoes that are being developed by these different brands using this technology? Yeah, so that's kind of, that's a definitely a bit of an open question. And it's something that has been, I think, very intriguing for, for me as both a a researcher in in the spectrum and a, a you know a bleeding fan of athletics <laughs> and also a participant there are restrictions in place now in terms of the thickness of a shoe how how thick it can be and on the roads they can be up to 40 millimeters thick so that's 4 centimeters that's that's a that's a very thick shoe <laughs> for most people um track spikes in the distance races can be up to 25 millimeters thick and in in the past the old spikes were very thin they probably were 10 millimeters or less um it was almost nothing it was a thin piece of foam. But now Nike first came out with the dragonfly. So that's what we call it. And that's essentially, you know, we could call that the the road shoe, the vaporfly. The dragonfly is kind of like the vaporfly light. Same foam with a, you know, kind of a curved plate moving through it. Um, the plate is a tiny bit different than, than what you would see in the road shoe, just kind of because of the geometry there, but largely the same. Um, but what's interesting is that other other brands, especially this year, have started coming out with with spikes that are thicker than the Dragonfly. And so, one thing that um, I found interesting was that the Dragonfly is actually not not even close to the limit of how thick a shoe can be. It's still it's under twenty millimeters. Um, so there are still you could put more foam on there if you wanted. And I would hypothesize that there are certain athletes in certain events. Um, maybe some of the longer distance events, especially that might benefit from having a a larger amount of that really good foam on there. And so you're actually seeing other brands like New Balance and Asics have spikes that are over the 20 millimeter mark, but still, you know, meeting that 25 millimeter. So they're thicker than the Vaporfly and have more of that foam. So I think we're kind of an interesting case now where there are other brands that have spikes that might actually be you know, you could you could create an argument that maybe for some people they're more beneficial than the Nike spikes. So I think it's an interesting case, but we certainly at our point now where some of these other brands have good offerings that when I watch the races in Tokyo, I think there will be a more level playing field than there was last year for sure. I've got sort of two questions for you from that. You said in a previous interview that you think the 2020 track events are going to look like the 2018 road events. How big an effect are super spikes going to have in this Olympic games? Yeah. So I think it's, it's hard because when we quantify effect, maybe the question is how much will they speed up times? It would be, the effect would be substantial if some athletes had them and some didn't. So if all of the athletes have them, the head to head might still be reasonably similar. At the Olympics, what we might see is we probably will see some really shockingly fast, like closing speeds in the races. So fast last laps of the 1500 or fast last kilometers of the 5k or the 10k. Um, But then in the races outside the Olympics that are set up to run really fast, that's where we'll see times tumble. And um, we've seen that already this season. 
the you know all-time world lists have been um, crumpled up and rewritten. <laughs> The problem that started that, that we that was really um, laid bare with the road shoes is that we really didn't have good rules around footwear. So we we had these this I would say kind of wishy washy um, arm waving rules of you know shoes cannot provide any unfair assistance or advantage, and that's that's just I would say again flowery legalese that that has no operational enforceable <laughs> meaning. <laughs> And so that allows some people to say that they're unfair advantage and other people to say, well, there's nothing explicitly banning them. Um, and so what we needed was just really good, explicit, transparent rules that we all agree on of what's allowable equipment. And as soon as we have that, um, then, yeah, we can chalk it down to you know progress and optimizing our performance within those rules. So that was the thing that really challenged the sport with with the shoes on the roads um was just the lack of lack of a regulatory framework of what's what is allowable equipment in the sport and now that we have that i think it's it's you can't call it cheating or doping or an unfair advantage it might be an unfair advantage if you're comparing yourself to somebody 10 years ago or 20 years ago so finally i wanted to ask you are there individual differences in how people respond to these super shoes or super spikes? Like if, if I were to wear the Nike version, would I experience a different way of running to if I wore the New Balance or the Asics versions? But also does that change as you become, you know, from me not being an elite athlete to actually somebody who is an elite athlete? Yes. Great question. And, um, I would say yes on all fronts. Um, in the sense that there is there is variability in how different people respond, um, and I would say I would lean towards we don't we don't have a lot of good data on the spectrum of you know types of athletes and their experience with the sport um, and how they respond. But there have been a couple really nice, good, solid studies on the road shoes that have have shown that just about everybody gets a benefit from these shoes, but the degree of their benefit uh, changes based on their individual characteristics. And there have been some hypotheses on, you know, some of the things that might explain parts of those individual differences, like, you know, your foot strike type with the ground or how long you're in contact with the ground have been thrown around. But broadly speaking, the bigger there's just a bigger unquantifiable kind of individual um, component to this. And that is unsettling for some because it does create that idea of, you know, super responders or, you know, not quote unquote non-responders. That is, that same phenomenon is true of anything that you add to the sport. And normal shoes are no different. There are some people for whom running barefoot is almost equivocal to having shoes on. There are other people that get several percentage points benefit of just putting shoes on. And so that idea of just introducing a piece of equipment creates varied response. And these, the shoes are no different. And maybe it's just because the uh, effect is a little bit larger that we then see that kind of tolerance range go a little bit larger. Everybody's way that they interact with the ground is very much like a fingerprint. And so these shoes, you know, with kind of more advanced architectural features, it might um, bring some of those nuanced differences, uh, might amplify them a little bit. So, so it will be a trick to figure out 
um, what works for different people. It's safe to say that whoever's wearing which shoe, it's going to be an interesting Olympics this year. Thanks so much for your time, Jeff. Yeah, my pleasure. There you have it. In less time than it takes for a 10K at the Olympics. Links to the latest from Tokyo can be found in the podcast's webpage, as well as Sean Ingalls' report on the Great Shoe War from 2020. Science Weekly will be back on Thursday, turning towards biological advantages in elite sport. If you've got any thoughts, feedback or episode ideas, drop us a message at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. Bye for now. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.